and, and the MVP was was ugly, right? I don't even know if we could even call it complete. We had to put enough of a chat solution to get started and earn the right to be on the website. And once you make a decision, I already know, you make a decision, you, you're going to stick with it for, for several years, right? It could be three to five years. It's something that you have to tell the team up front. We're not going to be changing here every year. We make a decision and we just, we disagree and we commit or we agree and commit, right? But we have to commit. My name is Elias Torres. I'm the CTO co-founder of Drift. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Elias Torres built on top of his successes to increase the effectiveness of your go-to-market strategy. All this and more on Code Story. A first-generation Latino immigrant, Elias Torres was born in Nicaragua. Growing up in a communist country, he had little resources, even food. 30 years ago, he came to the U.S. and hasn't looked back, living the American dream and even graduating from Harvard with an M.S. in computer science. He's married with three teenagers and is currently learning a new stage of parenthood because they're all different. When he's not being dad or CTO, he enjoys disconnecting while he's kite surfing or sailing. Torres strives to find the balance in building a successful company as an entrepreneur while not forgetting his roots and where he came from and making sure he increases opportunities for people of color in the United States. Five years ago, he and his co-founder figured out that teams needed to increase the effectiveness of their go-to-market strategy. Today, everyone wants to do things in real time, not during the 9 to 5. So he set out to build a revenue acceleration platform and did so quickly given that this was the fourth company he and his co-founder built together. This is the creation story of Drift. Drift has been a journey, right? I think my my co-founder and I, David Cancel, we've been working, this is our fourth company together. So we've been really 100% focused on on sales and marketing and really what is the the buying experiences that businesses, B2B companies go in, in the digital world. And so that's our, our, our journey, that's our experience. So it's been, we, we did that earlier at, at different companies, uh, Lookery, Performable, HubSpot, and now we're doing it at Drift. And at Drift, it was a, a crucial moment when we realized that by now, 2020, everybody is on board that we, everybody wants to do things more in real time and people wanna communicate through different mediums, right? It's not just going to be a phone call to my desk at my office, you know, between nine to five. It's that we're now in a world where we're connecting at any hour of the day and we can be using chat, we can be using messaging, SMS, WhatsApp, et cetera, right? To, to converse, to connect, we'll do a Zoom, we'll do a Google Meet. The, the way that marketing and sales interacted with buyers had to change. And so that's the journey we've been in. Uh, and what we've been developing is what we call a revenue acceleration platform, which is how to help you change your thinking in the company to react and meet wherever the buyers are. And so if they want to show up at 5.45 or they want to show up at 7.30 and say, this is the time I have, 
I would like someone to call me, how do we meet them through the mechanism that they want? And so we're here to help increase the business effectiveness of, of go-to-market teams to get to, to an opportunity to get to a closed sale in the most effective, efficient time as possible. Tell me about the MVP. So when you started building the first product, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to build it? So it took about three months and the MVP was was ugly, right? I, I don't think it was, I don't even know if we could even call it complete. There's so many definitions of MVPs, but it was really to validate, right? That messaging was important. We had a big hypothesis and it's called a step one of the Drift Master Plan, which was to get on B2B websites to chat with buyers, right? Not to chat with support, right? but to chat with buyers. And that's something that people didn't believe it was needed. And so we had to put enough of a chat solution to get started and earn the right to be on the website. And so uh, we, we, we cobbled together what we could. Um, my philosophy and learning by now is that you don't have to build everything yourself, you know, outsource as much as you can, use as many platforms and tools, and don't try to write things that you don't need to be writing, especially at the very beginning, right? There's so much platform reusability, right? Messaging platforms, hosting platforms, cloud platforms, processing databases, and you need to have your team focus on your core problem that you're trying to solve. So we, we outsource as much as we could, uh, technologies, we kept it simple. The other thing is I didn't have to find something too sexy, which is I've been using Java all my life. So the back end was all in Java and no need to, to go like find something super new because it allowed me to go as fast as possible because I already knew how to do it. I mean, how boring is it to just create a back end, an API system to put and get and delete, right? It's like, I just got to get it done and fast. And so we did that. We used React on the front end everything on Amazon, containers. Uh, it was great, you know, 2016, much better than my earlier companies. So much to reuse. Oh, it, it was much better than everything that I had had to build in the past. So I had a lot of fun doing that. Let's dig into some of the trade-offs you had to make at the beginning. So you, you touched on some of this where, you know, you choose a framework over building it yourself, right? Uh, what sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the early days about feature cut or framework choice? And how did you cope with those decisions as far as like technical debt and things like that? Yeah, it's, uh, for example, um, in, in, in prior companies, uh, we were using something like called Backbone, let's say, right? This is before React. And once you make a decision, I already know, you make a decision, you, you're gonna stick with it for, for several years, right? It could be three to five years. It's something that you have to tell the team up front, we're not gonna be changing here every year. We make a decision and we just, we disagree and we commit, or we agree and commit, right? But we have to commit. And so it's really uh, making a decision. And so when we were starting Drift, we had a decision, we were a little bit of a, backbone was already too outdated. And so we were thinking it was either Angular or React at the time. It was the early days. Uh, and I got lucky. I think the team was close to picking Angular. And I just did a little bit of research and just saw the there was more of a community and uptake. I think Facebook already had declared support for React. And so I just said, let's just go with React and, and that's it. I'm a prior company. We were already switching from Backbone to React. So that, that gave me enough confidence that it would work. And so I said, let's just go with it. You want something that more people are using, but it's hard, you know, I think it was the right answer. Angular did not work out, but it was really hard to tell at that time. 
because Angular had a strong movement and React was in the early stages. But open source, not invented here. That we don't have to be not invented here. We can just go and use it. So how did you progress the product from that MVP and, and mature it? And, and how did you build your roadmap from there? Well, from that MVP is, is to reach product market fit, right? It's really about validating that people can live without your product. And one way that they, you do that is either you survey them and you ask them, can you live without my product? Or the other one is that you charge them for it, right? And so it was a progression for about nine months to first get people to install it and go through that basic flow to second quarter was, you know, to three, it's a process for three quarters. First quarter, install it. Second quarter was use it. Could they use it? Could they actually message with buyers? And then step three was, could we charge them, right? We, we had to build all that system without that foundation. I think that, um, yeah, there's some people that are very, uh, they're purists about this. And I, I talk and advise entrepreneurs all the time. And they're like, we're not going to hire a sales team. We're just going to focus on, on validating the viral loop and acquire more users. And um, I don't subscribe to that, right? I'm a big believer that you have to um, validate it with money and the value because um, I, I, I rather get people buying it earlier. That's my philosophy. I'm a B2B person, entrepreneur, than trying to get 1 million users and then figure out how to charge it. So tell me how you built your team and, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Well, at the beginning, you really have no choice, right? When you're so small and it's not clear you're going to succeed, especially on the engineer inside of it. Uh, engineers are just are, are much more risk averse, right? And so you're not going to, even the people that know you, they don't want to risk a, a very good position and a great salary at another company. You don't, you don't have a choice. It's whoever you can convince, right? The better profile that you can convince, the, uh, the better. But in reality is that you have to convince people that can deal with a lot of chaos and ambiguity and that are very um, optimistic to believe that things will get better, right? That they would, you know, they would have faith that, you know, when we said at the beginning, we were like, we're going to serve a billion customers, right? Through messaging, when you only have five websites installing Drift a week, you got to believe in that. If you can't believe you're not going to be able to to even you know show up the next day. You got to have faith and excitement, optimism, uh, optimism. And then the other one is that you have to have the practicality. Uh, we call a principle of drift called bias for action, right? To be able to just not be paralyzed and just execute, right? Get something done. We we were doing that. So those are kind of like the two profiles, right? You know, let's get shit done and, and have faith that this was going to be something that would grow. Certainly. So you know, believing in what you're doing and then coming in being action oriented uh, to get to get it done and make it happen but also being a little gritty and being able to think on your feet so when you look at drift and how you started building it and, and where you're building it now uh, did you build it originally to scale efficiently did you have to uh, did you have to tackle that engineering problem uh, in the beginning or were you fighting this as you grew and changing uh, you have to fight it as you grow and you change it. Um, the difference is that with experience, you can make some decisions earlier or do some things right from the very beginning, right? For example, um, it could be controversial, right? But it's like I, I chose microservices from the beginning, right? 
And so uh, we, we had a very early, we were using something like Terraform so we can have code that describe our infrastructure. And so that's, those are investments that are, that I make earlier on, but with experience, you can sandbox and say, okay, I only have 30 days to move our infrastructure to Terraform. And that's what we did it on and it had to, it had to get done because we couldn't spend six months on a migration project when you have early days, no customers. Right. And so when you learn some of the, you know, good principles, like, you know, containerization, uh, microservices, separating backend, front end, when you know your languages, uh, you know, you're not going to have performance problems down the road. It helps you go faster. But at the end of the day, I would not, I never worried whether everything was built to scale from day one. For example, you know what, um, engineers get stuck on like, what should be the, the numbering identification mechanism in your objects in the database. And so the proverbial auto incremental IDs versus GUIDs, for example. I use MySQL, I use tables, I use auto incremental. And in fact, I even made the mistake of using integers and not longs as the identifiers in the database because I was going fast and I was not going to be worrying about every little thing. And so it's okay. You know what? It's like, there was a time when we crossed the fourth, you know, fourth billion object in our conversations or in our users. I was excited. I'm like, I'm glad that we're here. Right. And things are scaling and growing and, and we solved it. It's a couple of people were mad at me for a few weeks, but it's better than, than freezing and, and trying to architect for scale prematurely optimized. Right. Build it and solve those types of problems when you get to the growth where it actually makes sense. Did I hear you right that you started out with a sandbox microservice version, though? You mentioned Terraform. Yeah. So you started out building services first. And I, I agree. I think there are there are different opinions of how big to make a service and things like that. Where do you fall in that camp? We, we build the system. We know we had a customer API. We had a conversations API. Uh, we had a upload API. So I was building in the services mode. But to tell you the truth, it's like we had at the beginning, maybe four or five services, it grew from three to five, six, seven. But uh, still the, the the two biggest APIs were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I was, it was kind of like a hybrid of microservices and monolith in a way. Even until recently, they've been breaking away further. I, I don't know where we are even. I think last time I heard we were like at 50 microservices in the company, right? Uh, so I'm on the microservices camp where to draw the line it really depends right so as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built what are you most proud of what am i the most proud of of the people there's nothing more uh rewarding right than to have attracted where the company were basically 400 people right uh, and to have a place that you grow from just being a, a small family sitting around a table, 10 of us, right? And say, this is our startup, right? And it's like really family to move into the different stages of blitzscaling, right? And to go from a, from a family to a, a tribe to a village, right? It's, it's fantastic when people are like, people have been working four or five years at the company now. And they see and they're, they're committed to to want to see and this become a $10 billion company. Uh, their careers have grown. They've been promoted. Their families have grown. They became families. It's it's just magical, right, to see that uh, and their growth and their connection to, to the company and to the vision. So I think it's that's that's the most rewarding thing I can think of. I love that answer. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. 
Tell me about a mistake you made, either in the early days or any time, really, and how did you and the team respond to it? You know, my responsibility is really about building teams and then the products follows, right? I think I made mistakes in in hiring. I think that that's that's something that one of my biggest responsibilities in the company. And so you owe it to the company to never stop increasing the quality of the people you bring to the team. You got to always raise the bar. Uh, If not, the company's not going to get better. Absolutely not. You're not going to make any progress whatsoever if you bring less talented people into the organization, less committed, less uh, people that are less um, fit, right, to the principles of the company. Uh, and so I think that that's where I made mistakes and, and, and people understand it and see it, right, after the fact. My job is to detect it as soon as possible, but it's really, ideally, I should be coaching and training the team to be able to detect themselves faster too, because it's a team, it's a team responsibility. But when you bring some of the, sometimes the wrong candidate, uh, the wrong person, uh, you, you waste a lot of time. You waste a lot of resources, a lot of time, a lot of equity. And that's not uh, good for business value, right? Uh, you got to be able to avoid that hire. And, and if you make a mistake, also do it, uh, uh, fix it early and not let it linger because it, it creates a, a toxic culture. What does the future look like for the product, the Drift product and for the team? What, we, what, what I told the team is that you know, the, the size that we are, the revenue that we are in, the funding level that we are, the market penetration that we have accomplished in the past five years, mostly three years of a go-to-market experience. It's exactly the moment that I've been waiting all my life to be in, right? Which is, you know, I'm not a 1 million in revenue company. I'm not a 25 customers, 100 customer. We have uh, tens of millions in revenue. We have thousands of paying customers. We have 10,000, tens of thousands of people using, businesses using Drift, right? We have a brand, we have a market position, we have a team uh, that is like high quality. This is the position where I wanted to be all my life. So to build, to be in a position, in a stepping stone towards a $10 billion company. It's a great time. The product has been validated. Uh, it's very clear that there's a need for our product in, in, the, in the entire B2B space. It's a very large market and customers keep validating what we're doing. It's a matter of us executing, continue execution. The only ones that, we can, that can stop us right now is ourselves. So who influences the way that you work? Uh, CEO, CTO, architect, or person? Name a person you look up to and why. I don't quite just follow one person and say, I just want to be that person. I just, I just extract little tidbits from everybody. Right. You know, if you say Warren Buffett, then it's like, I want to read like Warren Buffett. I wish I could spend five hours of the day before reading. And maybe it's dumb for me to say, I wish I should just do it. Right. It's more valuable, right. To, to sharpen the, the ax before I go use the ax. Right. It would be great to do that. Uh, it would be Jeff Bezos' obsession with the customer uh, is incredible, right? He's a product customer obsessed. Mark Benehoff is a visionary, right? And, and uh, the book, you know, Behind the Cloud is like, you know, one of our Bibles. And we, we just read so many of the different books and the stories. All those people do that. Um, I was more recently listening to, watching The Last Dance, Michael, Jackson, uh, M- Michael Jordan. Definitely not Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. It's a, a, and, and he blew me away. I did not, you know, as a, I was young when, when he was playing and, and was, I was a fan, but when I saw this documentary, he blew me away because he said, 
you know, there's this struggle that people didn't realize how driven and how competitive he is to a fault and how he's so singularly focused. Have you watched The Last Dance? No, no, I haven't. But my partner has recommended it several times. I haven't got a chance to check it out. So what happened was that Michael Jordan would walk into the into the dressing room and the security guard would be playing craps in the in the dressing room. And he would go, you know, play against them to beat them. And he would just, if he lost, he would keep playing until he won and decimated them. He's just a, he's a, the, the most competitive human being I've ever seen in the world, right? And he was so good. But there was something that inspired me that he said was that he doesn't want to be there for everybody to say, oh, he was my friend, he hung out, he did everything. We just, we just party and we just did things. He goes, I was not here for that. I was here to win. And I was going to do whatever it took to win. And that means working and practicing and studying and learning and applying yourself and being disciplined because he wanted to win. So he goes, every time we win a championship, I see everybody happy celebrating the championship and holding the trophy. But then they're complaining when we're practicing. And so he goes, I'm here to win. And if you want to be here, it's because you want to win. And then he said something that blew me away. He said, I have never asked them to do something that I didn't do myself. He was the first one in the court. He was the last one in the court for practice, right? And studying. And so that's, that inspired me of being that kind of leader. I'm going to drive the team to a win. We're not creating a social club. We're, we want to be the best company in the world. We want to be the new face of corporate America. And so we're going to work towards that. And that's, that's the kind of people that are one around us and, and, and help be part of Drift. And I'm never going to ask them to do things that I didn't do myself. You know, I'm, I'm there with the team selling i'm there with them marketing i'm them over here i'm in a podcast i'm there with them uh, building the product writing the code i I've, I've been in every position and i'm willing to be in any position every single day right all right so that, that was amazing so there's just so many so many great influences out there we live in a day where there's access to so many stories and information it's a waste uh, if you're not doing that in and reading for yourself and finding role models and mentors if you could go back to the beginning of Drift, what would you consider doing differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I'm in this kick right now. It's like, you know, we, our investors, uh, Sequoia, right, for example, the bar at which they operate is so high. And I think sometimes people don't even understand it. I wasn't even appreciating, right, when I was first encountering it, right? And the kind of profiles of the people that we that we were tapping into for a board member, the, the kind of profile of people that we are doing for a C-level executive, CRO, CMOs, or, or vice presidents, and our engineers, right? I was a little bit under too much pressure at the beginning of like we got, we had to grow, we had to you know put butts in seats, and didn't realize how important that was. So I think that if anything, I would have just been more disciplined in my hiring and more patient. I think. Uh, one of the ways I would summarize this is to say, don't be in a hurry to make a mistake. That's a good line. Yeah, I, I would say I would have, I would have, I would have carried that more. But that's something that I have now, because I'm a, I'm a very driven, bias for action kind of person. But there are some decisions that are that are very big, and so that I always say that to myself again, and then that just brings me um, a lot of more calm, and knowing that having the right person is more important. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're super jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world, to you. Um, what advice do you give that person having gone down this road a few times? Specifically about the product or about them as a person? 
your choice. I would say as a product, I would say if you think about, I think entrepreneurs fall in love with their own ideas and their own hammers, right? And so I would say, make sure you articulate that you validate what is it that you're driving towards, right? Are you driving towards um, a problem? What problem you're solving? Are you solving a workflow? Are you solving something that somebody does every day? Or are you just solving a problem that you have the itch, right? And so I would say that, right? Uh, you think about it, are you doing something greenfield that is brand new that no one ever has done? Or are you replacing something? Greenfield requires a lot of education and a lot of investment. If you're replacing something and you're just doing it better, it's much easier, right? To, to guarantee that, you, that you'll have early adoption. And then as a person, I think you have to uh, invest a lot in, in learning about yourself, self-awareness and communication, because that's where we as humans struggle the most, right? Communicating with other human beings. So that spans everything, right? Just leadership, management, coaching, hiring, selling, marketing. And so I would say don't underestimate that and, and make sure that you'd be willing to adapt and to look at yourself and get coached on how well you communicate. That's great advice. Willius, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for being on Code Story and telling the product creation story of Drift. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. Awesome. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.